Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cedar Creek Community Church. I hope you guys have been enjoying the thaw. Yeah, yeah, clapping. That's that's good. I I can't uh, I can't disagree with that. Um, it's cleared up a lot of our nasty roads, but not all of them. I, I'm an insane bicyclist, and I bicycle all year round. And I will say that one of the streets that I take, in fact, my, my primary route, my main route, the one I like to take, it's the easiest, is basically untraversable by bicycle at this point. So a, a little longer of thaw would be nice, but I was checking the forecast this morning, uh, and it looks like we're getting a whole bunch more snow. So I, the total this morning on the site I checked said 16 inches between Tuesday and Thursday. So um, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry because it's been a busy week for me personally. Uh, we are getting ready and preparing to go to Miami. So I won't be here for all of that snow that's coming this week. Emily and I are flying out tomorrow morning early along with Mark and Nancy Anderson. We're going to a pastor's conference. Uh, in Miami, Florida. Rob's already there, actually. He's at a wedding of someone who uh, attended here at Cedar Creek for a while. And I'm personally quite excited. It's a good time of fellowship. Now, the way we kind of operate here, well, pastors behind the scenes anyways, twice a year, the pastors from the region get together. So in the spring, we get together usually with all the pastors and all their wives. We get together in somewhere in Minneapolis or or Minnesota. And uh, we pray for each other, we worship the Lord together, we instruct each other on how to be better pastors and better, better husbands and, and better fathers, and so it's a great time of fellowship. And so what we're doing this time is instead of going to Minnesota, there's this national conference happening, we're just going to combine it all into one. So it's going to be this wonderful and sweet time of fellowship with pastors who I've been laboring alongside for years, and also an opportunity to get to know what's going on in the new C1 network on a national um, front. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to missing, missing that snow. Um, now, I won't speak for Mark and Rob, uh, but I will check my emails periodically throughout the week. So if you guys uh, reach out to me, I'll try to get back to you. Um, but I won't be here to shovel. So sorry about that. Uh, so before I ramble on, we're going to be continuing our Genesis series this morning. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 16, specifically the second half. And now last week's section, Rob covered verses 1 through 6, where he talked about what was going on with Abram and Sarai and the, uh, them circumventing or trying to uh, make God's plan come of their own fruition. And this week, we're going to be looking more specifically at how Hagar comes into this story and, and how God interacts with her along the way. So well, let's pray, commit our time to the Lord, and then we'll begin to, to dive into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm grateful Uh, For this morning, I'm grateful for the beautiful weather today. I'm grateful that um, even though snow is a lot of work to remove, I'm grateful that it waters the earth and that by it you bring renewal and spring is coming and we will see uh, the new life uh, spring forth from the ground, Father. We thank you uh, for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that it's so timeless and it instructs us. And I pray that you would soften my heart and everyone's heart in here to receive your word, that you would help us understand your word and help us see you more clearly, love you more fully and worship you more holy, Lord. We love you and we commit our time to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, well, so this morning what we're going to do is read through all of Genesis chapter 16. And maybe you're saying, well, why? Rob, Rob covered the first uh, six verses last week. But I think those first six verses really set the stage for what we're going to talk about today. And a recap of that would be really helpful along the way. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open to Genesis chapter 16. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. If you don't have your Bible and you have a Bible app, feel free to pull up your phone. No one will judge you because you're on a Bible app and not on Facebook. And uh, if you don't have a Bible app or a Bible, just feel free to listen along to God's word. So Genesis chapter 16 in the ESV. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She was a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Here's our text for this morning, verse 7 to the end. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. All right, so in those first six verses, what Rob covered last week, we see a stage being set for us. And we find in those first six verses, in that first section, that it has been 10 years of Abram and Sarai waiting for God to fulfill his covenant promise to them that we've seen outlined in the previous chapters. And we see that after 10 years, Sarah's faith has begun to waver. She has begun to seek alternative methods to fulfilling that promise. And so she takes this female Egyptian servant of hers, a woman by the name of Hagar, and she offers her to Abram as his wife. Sarai goes to Abram and says, hey, I have another plan. I have a plan of polygamy, a plan perhaps outside, no, for sure, outside of God's design for marriage. And I think we can make God's blessing come about this way. We actually see God's plan for marriage outlined for us in Genesis 2.24, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. So Abram hears this plan. This plan of polygamy. This plan outside the design that God laid out for marriage. And much like Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17, he listened to the voice of his wife. And he stepped outside God's design and he took Hagar as his second wife. We see here Abram not leading his wife, just like Adam didn't lead in the garden. And he makes this plan come to pass. And so Hagar gets pregnant and shows contempt for Sarai. And then Sarah gets mad. Here's this Egyptian servant girl who's now pregnant, showing contempt for me, the head female of the house. And so she goes to Abram and says, well, may the wrong be done, that's done to me be done to you. And Abram responds, well, she's your servant. Do with her as you please. And so she deals harshly with Hagar, and Hagar flees. If we look at this situation this morning, we see it looks like everybody involved is in one way or another in sin, right? Abram's listening to a plan that's outside God's design for marriage, a plan of polygamy, and putting it into practice. It wasn't the listening to his wife that was a problem. We talked about that in Genesis 3. We, we should listen to our wives closely. But if our wives bring us a plan that's outside of God's design, we have a job to do and to say no. But he goes along with it. He had an opportunity to lead his wife and he was complacent. Well, Abram's sin, fairly obvious. And then you have Sarai's sin here. She proposed this plan that's outside of God's design, a plan of polygamy. And then when things start to go the way she wasn't expecting, she treats her servant harshly. And then we see Hagar here sinning by showing contempt for her mistress, Sarai. She gets pregnant and then starts to sniff her nose at her mistress. Now I will say, personally, as I read through this, Abram's sin and Sarai's sin makes the most sense to me. When I read the text, it, it, it bubbles to my mind quite quickly what is going on here. But when I think of this idea of Hagar treating Sarai with contempt, it leaves me personally scratching my head a little bit because while I know that contempt isn't a good thing, I couldn't tell you outside of studying scripture the last time I used that in my everyday vocabulary. How many of you use contempt often throughout your week? So I with the afforded opportunity, I went to my favorite dictionary and looked up this word because I needed to understand, all right, what does it really mean for Sarai to show contempt towards her mistress? And so here we have uh, Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary definition here explaining to us what is actually going on. And so we see that contempt is the act of despising. Okay, I probably would have gathered that. The act of viewing or considering and treating as mean, vile, and worthless. Maybe that holds a little more weight than I thought. Disdain, hatred of what is mean or deemed vile. It's this last sentence that catches me. This word is one of the strongest expressions of a mean opinion which the language affords. Oof. That word carries far more weight 
than I would have guessed. Hagar here is truly operating outside a godly response to this situation. Instead of perhaps some gratitude that she is now pregnant, and it appears that the covenant given to Abram is going to be fulfilled through her, she treats Sarai awfully. One of the strongest expressions of a mean opinion which the language affords. This is just a big ball of sin happening here. Abram's in sin, Sarai's in sin, Hagar's in sin. Sarai responds to Hagar's contempt by treating her harshly, and that's where we pick up this morning. The servant Hagar has fled from her. She's run away. So, turning to today's section this morning, we see in verse 7, the beginning of, really, Hagar's story here, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, if we bounce back to Genesis 16.3, which we just read earlier, we're reminded that Abram, Sarai, and Hagar have been dwelling in a place called the land of Canaan. And Hagar here is found in the wilderness of Shur. Now, I don't live in the Middle East, so I got out a map. And I'm like, all right, where, where are these places? And so you have the land of Canaan over here. You have the wilderness of Shur around the sea right about here. And then you have Egypt. So they were in Canaan, the land of Canaan, and she has fled. And she's being met by this character called the angel of the Lord in the wilderness of Shur, which is on the way to Egypt. Now I'm guessing by the fact that you would have to pass through the wilderness of Shur to get to Egypt. And that Hagar was an Egyptian sl- servant she was probably headed home. She was probably looking at the situation and thinking, this was your plan. It has gone horribly awry. You're treating me in a way that I don't like. I'm going home. This is ridiculous. And so we find Hagar here headed home. Now she's stopped and resting by this spring of water. And this character enters here for the first time in the scriptures the angel of the Lord finds her by a spring of water. And now there's some mystery over this angel of the Lord in the scriptures and what exactly this means here. Some would suggest that Hagar is having a vision. Perhaps she's caught up in a trance and she's seeing the angel of the Lord in her mind, whatever that quite looks like. Personally, when I read the text, while I will give that that's a possibility, I don't see that supported here. Could be. Entirely possible she's having a vision, but I don't think that's what's happening. This could be God approaching Hagar in physical form. God, our God, the creator, in physical form, finding the fleeing Egyptian servant girl in the wilderness by a well. Theologians like to call this a theophany, God in physical form. Another alternative here that some have suggested is that this is what we call a Christophany, which is Jesus Christ in physical form. Pre-Christ, pre-death, burial, and resurrection, coming to her, meeting her along the way. So it is entirely possible in this text that we are seeing God in physical forms, one way or the other, coming to a fleeing girl in the middle of a wilderness and speaking to her. 
Just take a moment and, and let that sink in. Our God, the creator, the one who created everything we see, interact with, feel. He condescended, he came down from the heavens and met a fleeing servant girl in the wilderness. Wow. But not only does he come to her, we see him begin to speak to her. Continuing on in verse 8, it says, And he said, the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Now, as I read that brief interaction there, it reminds me of the Genesis 3 Garden of Eden account. God is walking in some sort of physical form through the garden. And he calls out to Adam. He says, where are you? Where are you? Here we see God approaching Hagar. And he says, where have you come from? Where are you going? Adam responds with a veiled acknowledgement of his sin. And I think here we also see Sarah or Hagar respond with a veiled acknowledgement of her sin. She says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. When I compare those two accounts, it seems to be quite similar. But maybe you're asking me, I just told you that I think there's a veiled acknowledgement of sin. What veiled acknowledgement of sin could I be referring to? When she says, I was fleeing my mistress, Sarai. It's that word mistress. She was fleeing from her mistress. This isn't just some random person. This isn't just somebody she met along the way, someone she met along the road and treated her, her poorly, but rather this is her mistress. And again, with the word contempt, I, outside of scripture, don't know the last time I used that word. In fact, I think many of us also don't use the word mistress in our common vocabulary, so I went and found a definition here of mistress. I can't help it. Such a, Dictionaries are good. Definitions are important. So, Here we have the Noah Webster's definition of mistress. It is a woman who governs correlative to servant, slave, or subject. And it is also the female head of a family. So so Hagar here admitting that Sarai is a mistress is really telling us two things. It demonstrates very clearly that Sarai is the female head of this family. She is, she's the matriarch. Rob talked about this last week. She has an elevated role as the female head of her family. But it also demonstrates to us that Sarai is the one in charge of or governing over Hagar. Sarai is a civil authority over this servant girl, Hagar, and Hagar has fled from her civil authority. So I think here we see Hagar's response is actually a veiled acknowledgement that she is fleeing unlawfully from one she had no right to. And the angel of the Lord, our God, in physical form, perhaps a Christophany, Jesus Christ, he responds to her. In verse 9, he says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Oof. Verse 6, we just saw that the situation, Hagar felt like she was being treated harshly. 
and he's asking her to go back. I think it's worth pausing for a moment here and looking a little bit at that word harshly in Genesis 6, 6 from last week's text. That word in the Hebrew is anaw. Fun factoid. But it's most commonly known to mean to afflict or to humble. If you go to Blue Letter Bible and you pull up the Hebrew for this word, you'll find that, I believe it's 60 sometimes out of the 80 uses in the scriptures, it means to afflict or to humble, to humble someone. And so that means that Sarai, in response to Hagar treating her with contempt, is one translation here, she's afflicting her, doing something that's uncomfortable or unsavory, or alternatively, she's trying to humble her. You're in a secondary role, you're a secondary wife in this culture, and you can't treat me that way. And this is bringing, at minimum, discomfort to Hagar, probably more than that. Either way, Sarah's response is not well received by her servant girl, Hagar, and so she flees from this harsh treatment. But here we have God telling her to return to her mistress and to submit to her. He asks her to return to a difficult and painful situation. How could God ask her to do that? And not only ask her to return to a painful and difficult situation, he asks her to do it submissively. See, if I was asked, I think my flesh would immediately say, yeah, sure, I'll return, but I'm going to do it with my chest puffed high, looking at you, Sarai. So what's going on here? How could God ask her to do this? Well, here's what I think is going on here. Here's what I suspect is happening. I think God in this circumstance is rebuking Hagar for two separate sins. First, Hagar has fled her mistress. She's fled this civil authority in her life. And I see God upholding the authority of that human civil authority, the authority of that human civil governance in the situation. Now, to be clear, crystal clear, I do not see this as God establishing a mistress-servant-master-slave situation. I do not see this as God condoning that or showing us that it is part of the design of creation. In fact, if we study the scriptures, we will find in many places that God does not have this as part of his design. But I think this is an acknowledgement of the reality of her situation and her poor response to it. He is addressing specifically the sin of Hagar and in no way condoning the situation. Secondly, not only has God asked her to return to take the opposite course to her previous path, but he's asking her to do it in a certain way. And the manner of her return is to one where she does it submissively and not defiantly. I see this as a direct rebuke to Hagar treating Sarai with contempt, with total disdainment and hatred, seeing her as wicked and evil. He's correcting her response and her character while in no way condoning the situation. Now, as I pointed out earlier, I do not see this as a condonement of slavery, and I don't see this as a condoning of Sarai treating Hagar poorly, and I don't see God here condoning polygamous marriage. He is addressing very specifically the sins of Hagar. 
Now, to make this example, or what's going on here, perhaps a little bit easier to wrap our brains around, I want to give us a picture of how this happens in my life daily. It bears, uh, this situation bears a great deal of similarity to, me, similarity to me as a parent. And if you have kids, you probably have seen something like this before. Let's say uh, I have four children. Let's say two of my children get into a spat or a squabble over something. And let's pretend that, well, almost always, when my kids squabble or spat, almost always, not always, but almost always, 99% of the time, both of them are in sin. And let's say, for example, that one of my sons decides it would be a good old jolly time to do something mean to my daughter. And so he's mean and nasty to my daughter. And my daughter, feeling hurt, puts her heads down, grabs a doll by the foot, swings it around, and whacks him across the face. Any likeness or similarity to uh, situations in life? Um, Let's say this happens. As a parent, when Emily or I correct our children, I go to my son and I correct his being mean and nasty to his sister while in no way condoning him getting smacked across the face with it all. And when my wife or I go to my daughter and correct her, instruct her, discipline her for her sin of grabbing a doll and smacking her brother, I'm in no way condoning the brother being mean or nasty. I'm not condoning the sin of either of them in this situation, but rather I am specifically dealing with the sin of each child. And I see that concept here playing out in God's response to Hagar here in Genesis 16. As a loving father, he is correcting her sin specifically in this situation while not condoning Sarai's actions or the awful situation she has found herself in just like I would address my daughter's sin specifically and not condone my son smacking her or being mean to her. So correcting her is in no way condoning the situation. But Hagar was in sin. She had responded poorly. She couldn't here blame her actions on the crummy situation. She couldn't use the injustices done to her as an excuse to sin, as an excuse to respond in a way that was ungodly and unbiblical. While you and I would look at the situation and say her response was understandable, yes, but justifiable, no. And that idea that you and I are unable to justify our sinfulness by a bad situation, by people sinning against us, by everything in the world going around us, really flies in the face of a deep-seated and pervasive problem within our culture. People like to call it the victim culture. People are wronged in one way or another in their past or in the present, and then they use that as an excuse to justify their own wickedness, their own sinfulness, their own path that they put their foot to that disobeys and dishonors our Heavenly Father. And Hagar had every opportunity in this moment to do just that. She could have looked around at the situation and said, geez, I was given away as a second wife, treated harshly. Now I'm pregnant. I'm in a polygamous marriage. This whole thing is gone wrong. I have every reason to play the victim here. It is everyone else's fault and not mine. 
But God doesn't even afford her that opportunity. He addresses her sin in the situation while not condoning the ball of sin happening around her. And I think this is how our God operates with us. He corrects our sin in the situation, not affording us the opportunity to excuse, make, and to blame shift, all while not saying, what's going around you is good. No, it's not good. But you can control your own self. In fact, I would say, not only does God come to us and instruct us on how we should respond, he gives us texts in the scriptures on how we ought to respond prior to something happen. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul is speaking here, a man who is greatly persecuted. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We take an opposite path. We see in 1 Peter 4.19, I love this verse, have this memorized. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will commit themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Even in a situation that is awful and everything else is going wrong, we are to entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good, while honoring our Father. Jesus speaks on this at the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God afforded Hagar no license on account of her bad situation, on account of the injustices done to her on account of the fact that this whole plan was outside of God's design. And you and I are afforded no license to sin in tough situations either. So as Christians, we must be careful. We must be careful that we're not trying to justify our sinful actions using blame shifting or excuse making. Whatever situation we find ourselves in this morning, right here, right now, we know that we can ask ourselves this question, am I responding as Hagar did? Am I compounding the sin of the situation? Or am I responding as God would have me? Am I responding in a way that honors and glorifies him? All right, so we've seen the angel of the Lord has approached Hagar in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord has come to her and corrected her for the sins that she's committed in this awful situation. And we see the tone of this begin to shift. And we see that the angel of the Lord, as a tender and loving father, having corrected Hagar's sin, begins to bless her. So we turn here to verse 10. It says, The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. I will multiply your offspring. So after directing her to return to her mistress, to do so submissively and not defiantly, not in contempt any longer, he promises to multiply her offspring. Now, if you guys have been with us for a few weeks, you might be in your seat thinking to yourself, aha, God promised that he would give Abram a multitude of descendants. Sarah's plan worked. This whole plan of polygamy outside the design of the covenant of marriage between one man and woman, it worked. 
God allowed the lesser plan, the humanly prospered plan, the humanly devised plan. He's going to use that to succeed, to give Abram offspring, to bring in the holy and chosen people of the Lord. And maybe we can come to the conclusion then that by our own strength we can make these things happen. We can kind of manipulate the Lord into the blessing he promised. Spoiler. Spoiler, if we continue to read in Genesis 17, specifically verses 15 through 21, we find that Ishmael is not the promised one. Mark's going to be talking on that in three weeks. And we learn that God does not establish the promise through Ishmael, but rather through Isaac, who will come through Sarai, his wife, within that proper marriage covenant. But then maybe we're asking the question now, okay, so he's going to give her a multitude of blessing. It appears to be the fulfillment of that promise, but, but it's not. Why would he bother blessing her? Why would God bless Hagar's offspring? And as I thought, for this, uh, thought about this in preparation for this morning, I think really we have, I have two answers for you this morning. I think God, because he had chosen Abram to establish that covenant with his descendants, because he had chosen him to produce a holy and chosen race and people through him, is blessing Hagar because she is bearing his son. She is being blessed because of her marriage relationship, even though it is a polygamous and second wife marriage relationship, he is still choosing to bless Abram's offspring. But secondly, and more practically this morning for you and I, I think it's because God blesses obedience. I think here Hagar is blessed because God blesses obedience. And if we read through this, we find that Hagar does in fact obey the Lord and do as he commands her here. And somehow, it's interesting to me, within modern Christianity, within our modern Christian culture, we've come to this idea that you and I never have anything to do with our blessings in our life, about things going right or wrong. Now, certainly, we don't have control over those situations, but if we faithfully read through the scriptures, we will find there are a lot of blessings in the scriptures that are tied to something you and I do. And so I think God correcting Hagar here and telling her to return, and to return not defiantly but submissively, and then Hagar obeying that command is blessed here by the Lord. I think Hagar is blessed because of her obedience. And we can actually see the rest of that blessing in the next two verses. The angel of the Lord continues in verse 11 through 12, and said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. Now, I'll be honest, there's a lot packed in here, and we're only going to cover one section of that promise. In the second half of verse 11, we see, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. If we back up, we read through all of Genesis chapter 16. Have we seen it recorded anywhere that Hagar was seeking God? Have we seen it anywhere recorded that Hagar was praying to him, that she was talking to him, that she was crying out to him about this horrible situation? No matter how diligently we search this text and try to read between the lines, I don't see that applied anywhere. 
Hagar wasn't seeking him. She wasn't looking for him. She got in a bad situation, responded poorly, and ran. And here she is in the middle of the wilderness on her way home, not talking to the Lord, and yet the Lord, the Lord was listening to her afflictions. That is incredible for us this morning. Because despite Hagar not once seeking her heavenly father, despite her not once going to him and saying, man, I'm in a bind, I'm, I don't know what to do, this is awful, never directing her troubles or worries or injustices toward heaven, God meets this Egyptian servant girl who's fleeing in the wilderness and speaks to her. And not only did he listen to what was going on and see what was going on, he came to her in a physical form, he met her, he corrected her as a loving father would, and he blessed her. God met her right where she was at. Just like God will meet you right where you are at. In this very moment, right now, God is intimately, fully, and completely aware of every situation that is going on in your life, every affliction or oppression or injustice that you are experiencing, every sin that's being foisted upon you by others. He knows. If there's an injustice being done to you, just like with Hagar, he sees your afflictions. And if you're a Christian, I promise you this morning that he will meet you like he met Hagar along the way. And though it's painful, a loving and tender father will discipline and correct his children. He will point out our sin in the midst of a big ball of it. He won't excuse our sin simply because the situation was bad or we had an understandable reason for responding poorly. But like a tender, tender and loving father, he will correct us, he will discipline us, and he will help us move forward. And now if God did all this for Hagar, who wasn't seeking the Lord, who wasn't looking for him, who wasn't asking him for help, how much more will we as Christians who love our father, who go to him for help, who go to talk with him, who lay out our injustices to him, who go to the scriptures and ask for counsel and ask for wisdom, how much more will that loving father meet us in our affliction? We can have confidence this morning that if we are Christians and we approach our God, if we approach our king, if we approach this tender father, that he sees our afflictions. I want to be careful here this morning because we have the story here of Hagar who isn't seeking the Lord. And God has met her along the way. We ought not look at that situation and say, well, see, I don't need to seek him. I don't need to follow him. He'll, he'll just come when he's ready. No, that sh- this whole story should not be an excuse for us to continue in our waywardness and in our rebellion. Rather, this should point us to the fact that when we're blind, he sees. And when we don't know what to do, he is there for us. And that if we approach him as Christians, as his children, he will come to us in love, in mercy, in compassion, with truth and correction and blessing. And he will bless our obedience of seeking him. And I love here how Hagar 
responds to this, being met along the way when she wasn't seeking the Lord. Verses 13 through 14, it says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So here we have Hagar acknowledging that God was present with her throughout this situation. And that she has God, she has seen God looking out for her. And now being met along the road here in the wilderness of Shur at this spring of water, this well, she begins to praise and worship him. She begins to bow her knee to her tender and loving father. And then she names this spring. This is just so beautiful here, and there's a lot of instruction for us. She names this spring Bir Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. She names the well, well of the living one who sees me and is publicly proclaiming the faithfulness of God in her awful situation. Other people who come along this way and see this well are now going to proclaim that there is a God who sees them in the midst of their rebellion and in the midst of their waywardness, in the midst of their sin. And this is here for us today. She proclaims to you and I this morning that even when we are afflicted, even when we are wayward, even when we are rebellious and blinded by our own sin, there is a God who sees your affliction and will meet you along the way. And I think you and I, when we see God come through for us in situations like these, ought to respond as she did. We ought to publicly testify to his goodness, his grace, and his faithfulness to us along the way. Not only will that keep for you and I it in our personal memory that he has come through for us in the past, but it will encourage and build up the brothers and sisters around us. May we respond by publicly testifying to God's goodness. And here we are to the last two verses this morning. And it says, And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So it's in these last two verses that we see that she did in fact obey. She took God's command and she returned. She returned to her mistress. And I presume, reading between the lines here a little bit, she didn't do it defiantly. She did so submissively as God had instructed her. And she gives birth to this boy and Abram calls her Ishmael. Now maybe that doesn't seem like a striking piece of information there, but Abram's the one who gets to name the child. And she was told to name him Ishmael. So that means not only did she return and not do so defiantly, but submissively, she came back and she proclaimed to Abram and likely Sarai what God did for her. That God had met her along the way, had spoken to her, approached her in some sort of physical form, corrected her, told her the way that she should go, and that she stepped out in faith and obeyed him and publicly proclaimed his goodness. Hagar's response In this situation, when God meets her along the way is one you and I ought to imitate. One we ought to mimic when we find ourselves met with him, faced with our own sin. Lord, help us obey. Help us do hard things. 
So in the closing this morning, as we look and reflect on Hagar's story, when you and I find ourselves in situations like Hagar, are we responding as she did? In the beginning of the story, she didn't respond well. When we are persecuted, do we treat other people with contempt as Hagar did? Or do we bless? Do we seek God in our affliction like Hagar should have? Or do we flee, take it into our own hands, put our feet to our own path? When God corrects us, do we respond in obedience as she did? And do whatever he is asking us to do, even if it seems difficult or tumultuous. And when God does meet us in our affliction and we see his faithful goodness come through for us, do we exalt his name like she did? Naming that well, well of the living one who sees me. Do we tell others of his faithfulness and goodness to us in spite of all those difficult things? See, we can learn so much from Hagar and her story and the rest of the scriptures. And so I hope this morning that you and I, we can seek God in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our difficulties, that we can rejoice when he meets us in them as Christians. If we go to him, he promises us to meet us there. May we exalt his name when he responds to us in faithfulness and goodness. And may we respond to his correction well as a tender, loving father disciplining his children. May you and I this morning and this week walk hand in hand with a tender father. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Hagar's example, for Hagar's story, Lord. She started off... Responding poorly, Lord, you met her and she followed you and responded well. And I pray, God, that we're all going to find ourselves in that situation. We're all going to find ourselves responding poorly. I pray that when you come to us and you meet us along the road, that we respond well to you like she did, that we worship and praise you like she did, that we exalt your name and your faithfulness and your goodness to us like she did, Lord. I pray for our hearts. I pray for our minds. I pray for our souls. Help us follow you wholly. We love you, Lord. Jesus' name, amen.